When you think about population health, what comes to mind? Utilization? Network management? Quality reporting? How about scurvy? That's what Dr. Kevin Band, the head of Athena Health's Population Health Service, brings up when he talks about the transition from fee-for-service healthcare to a whole new way of looking at patients and doctors and healthcare systems. So scurvy, dread disease of the Middle Ages and beyond. It's estimated to have killed up to two million sailors who took long journeys during the Age of Exploration. And it was a terrible way to go. First, you get fatigued, then your muscles start to ache, your gums start to swell, you get pain in your joints and your bones, you develop a trembling fever, and you die. But it turns out scurvy had a surprisingly easy cure. I'll let Kevin tell you. This wasn't recognized until James Lynn back in 1747 started doing some studies and realized that an orange, but even easier, a teaspoon of citrus of any type, could prevent a group of sailors from dying. But it took him a while to even publish that treatise. But what's even more discouraging is it took nearly 50 years for the British Navy to adopt it into practice. And this was Kevin's point. Change in healthcare, even change that's obvious and unequivocally good, doesn't always come easily. And sometimes for good reason. In part because we're careful about how we take care of patients. We don't want to make big changes immediately because there is plenty of snake oil out there, and we have to be sure that it works. But even just changing the way we think about taking care of patients is a big deal. So we're not going to see it overnight. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a journey. This will not be a singular event. The transition Kevin just described is exactly what this podcast is going to be about. Kevin and I will meet people who are starting to see the differences, recognize the citrus, serve up the orange. We'll get into the details of how to keep patients in network and how to shift doctors' mindsets to evidence-based care. We'll talk about some surprising innovations in care for the chronically ill, and we'll take a deep dive into the future of payment reform. I'm Joanna Weiss, and this is Decoding Healthcare. Today, we're going to talk with Kevin about his journey from a swashbuckling ER doctor treating patients in crisis to someone who helps health systems think about managing the health of patients all the time, whether they're in front of a doctor or not. So let's get started. So you started in a hospital system. You started with the classic American medical training. Yeah, I mean, my upbringing in, in healthcare was really in tertiary and quaternary care hospitals. That's where I stayed all through medical school, through my residency, and even as an academic attending, I was at a teaching hospital in Boston, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And my worldview was very focused on the hospital, um, uh, the complex care that we provided there, and didn't think much about what happened to patients once we discharged them from the emergency department or the hospital. It was someone else would be on that. Um, it wasn't something that we, we thought too much about. And then you went to Tuscany. How'd you get that gig? Tough life, right? <laughs> well, uh, this was in early, it was around 2002, and Tuscany was struggling with some bad outcomes in the emergency department. They didn't have formalized training in emergency medicine back then. And they, we got into a relationship, Harvard Medical Faculty Physician, Harvard Medical International, with the Tuscan government, to do education at the University of Pisa, Siena, and Florence. And that was not an opener for me. How was it? What, what did you see that was different from what you saw in the hospitals back home? It's almost embarrassing in some ways how maybe arrogant we were in terms of 
how convinced we were about how to provide care. We were deeply entrenched in a fee-for-service model at that point. There was no talk of value or value-based care. And we honestly would make fun at times of some of the stuff that they were doing, things that later we ended up doing ourselves. Like what? We would look at how they dealt with chest pain. Okay, so patient would arrive in the, the emergency ER. department with chest pain. And what we would do is sort of get the ball rolling, admit them to the hospital. What they did in Tuscany was they would keep them for about 24 hours, do some essential testing. Without admitting them, just keep them in the ER department? Yeah, what we would call observation status now. They would do that testing, make sure the patient was okay, didn't need anything beyond the basic stuff that they were able to do there, and discharge them home. That's something that we looked at and said, wow. They're creating a hospital within a hospital. I mean, I specifically remember that's what we said about it. And now we do something exactly like that. Give me some other examples of things they did in Italy that were mind-blowing to you at the time. Right. Uh, They would take recent graduates from medical school, people who were still waiting to start their residencies, and and they would put them on ambulances. Uh, And when there was a call uh, uh, of shortness of breath, let's say in a patient who had congestive heart failure, they would send these newly minted doctors, not yet residency trained, to evaluate these patients. It's a really interesting concept. What they would do then is sometimes decide, well, you know what, if I just tweak their medications, maybe give them a little bit of a uh, diuretic, which uh, you know helps the situation, the patient doesn't need to go to the emergency department. In fact, we'll just have them follow up their primary medical doctor. So how many years were you in Italy? The program lasted about uh, eight years overall. Okay. And did you find that you were a different doctor by the time that was over? Were you Had, had you bought into the system or, or changed the way you practice because of the system? No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, I think I was exposed uh, to a different way of providing care. I was primed in some way. I wouldn't say, though, that uh, I'd really put it all together. Um, So it was really being exposed to this concept of value-based care and risk contracting that I started to reflect more on what happened in Italy and started to put the pieces together. It's, It's almost like if you're on the dance floor and you're doing a really good job of dancing. You're like, you're like tripping the light fantastic. You got the tango. You got it going on. You're like, I'm on this situation. And then all of a sudden you take a break, you go up to the balcony and you look down on the dance floor and you're like, wow, there is so much more going on in that dance floor. And I am, uh, I'm just too focused in on this particular thing. And I think that's the journey we're on with uh, value-based care. You know, we're we're kind of pulling back and saying, hey, what does this population look like? What are some strategies? What are some tactics that we can use to think about uh, the, a bigger panel of people? So let's let's take a real life scenario of a patient and how you might treat a patient differently. I will I will embarrass myself a little and bring up a personal situation. So I yeah, a, a few months ago, I broke my foot. It was a really dumb injury involving a dark staircase at 6 a.m. and a cat. That's generally the formula. That's how it happened. So fortunately for me and my cat, I didn't need surgery. But let's say I had hurt my knee and I was a great runner and it got to the point where this was the straw that broke the camel's back and I needed surgery. And I was not in a fee-for-service contract. I was in a risk-based, a bundled contract. How would my doctor be treating me differently? 
Well, let's say that you had repetitive injuries and in,、uh, of that knee, and、mm-hmm. and and now you you had this really you know arthritic knee, and you needed to have a joint replacement. It didn't. I, you can't blame my cat for that. No, probably、um. not. It'll have to be a series of cats. <laughs> It's going to take time to do this. <laughs> Yeah, so let's say that you're、uh, in a、um, fee-for-service model. Let's start there.、Okay. Well, you know, you pay for the the payer, whomever that is, pays for the procedure. They don't necessarily pay for a good outcome.、Uh, they just pay for the procedure to be done. Let's say you're in a value-based contract, and this is something I was involved with at the hospital.、Uh, I, I guess a, a joint. Uh, might cost a knee replacement in let's say about thirty thousand dollars. I might not be、mm-hmm. dead on with that.、Uh, if I say as the payer, we're going to pay you thirty thousand dollars to do this procedure.、Um, if you can do it, in, you know, for less. If you can do it for twenty seven thousand, twenty five thousand, you can keep the difference. All right, but we're not paying you more than thirty thousand dollars. Well, all of a sudden. You have a completely different conversation that's happening internally, and that's an interesting moment. Now, all of a sudden, you're gaining alignment、uh, among all of the different providers who touch that patient: the surgeon, rehabilitation, the folks who care for the patient in the hospital, maybe the hospitalists if it's not the surgeons. Who runs the conversation? Who facilitates? Well, that was one of the things that that I did as a chief medical officer is got people together and said, "Hey, how can we think about care differently?" And so, what happens then is you start to think about, well, what can we do to prep the patient beforehand that they're going to go home?、Uh, they're going to go home with services instead of going to rehab. Patients so, do better when they go home. So you're talking about changing doctors. Mindsets, but also changing patients' mindsets, because I think a lot of them now go to the hospital or go to the doctor and say, "Give me my thing,、yeah. give me my surgery." Well, what happens is that patients go into the hospital, and if they have the expectation that they're going to go to rehab after, there it's almost impossible to get them off of that concept, right? They're pretty fixated on, "I'm going to rehab. I can't go home." So it really starts early on, before you are even in the hospital. Uh, in the way that the surgeon presents this to the patient, and starts to create the expectation that in fact they'll go home, they'll do great with services at home, and that their outcomes will be better. So all of a sudden you see a realignment in how we're delivering care, and that needs to be carried through all the way through this episode of care. And when we do that, we find that we are able to do something very interesting, and that is provide really good care at decreased cost. But you're talking about shifting so many mindsets. So, in your experience, how hard is it to convince patients that this is the standard of care, and then how hard is it to convince providers and doctors that this is the standard of care? Patients tend to love this, especially those patients who have chronic medical problems. You know, there are a lot of moving parts there, and to have a care manager who's kind of your trusted、uh, advisor, your friend at times, who helps you navigate these really complicated waters. And these are complicated、yeah. waters,、uh, is、uh, a really good thing, and the feedback from patients has been exceptionally positive. So for doctors, then I imagine it's a little more complicated because <laughs> you're not just talking about changing the delivery of care; you're changing how they get paid. Yeah, that's it, a big deal. It can be significantly more more difficult, you know. And I should mention that you know providers go to work every day, you know, taking care of patients and doing a really good job of it. The issue is they don't think about all the patients who are in their panel. Maybe patients who are in a risk contract that they don't know about, right? So, so it's hard for doctors to look at this and and say, well,、uh, yeah, we need to totally change the system because their point of view is I'm doing a really good job of caring for my patients. It's not until you pull back and sort of see the whole population that you start to go, oh boy, 
<laughs> so as a chief medical officer, you know, as a physician leader, how do you pull them off the dance floor and get them to look at the dance floor? What do you what steps do you take? What can you do? For us, it was a it was a process, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it was one probably characterized by stages of grief. You know, you've, <laughs> you've got the denial, the anger, the deal making, uh, and eventually uh, you get to the acceptance. For us, it was about really understanding our patient population. We had a we had to get a window into the soul of what was happening, and that happened through data. Well, let's talk about that data. What's the most useful data that you could share with a physician? to make him or her understand, hey, this is the way we got to go? Well, we started with claims data, uh, you know, adjudicated claims. So, um, you know, that was really the foundation of what we needed to look at, but it really wasn't enough. And so we pulled in stuff from the electronic health record, like uh, pharmacy, labs, other information. Nowadays, we're pulling in uh, ADT, which is admission discharge transfer information, uh, we any data that you can pull in and really get a 360-degree look at, uh, at a particular patient. So you're looking at one particular patient when he or she comes through the door with that bum knee and saying, here's where this patient is on the continuum, here's what we should do right now? Well, what we generally do is take a look at, you know, we aggregate all that data and normalize it, and we make sure that we have a really good data set, right? The integrity is paramount. If you go to physicians with data that's questionable or uh, not dead on, uh, it's a whole it's a whole can of worms. They know their you numbers. They're scientists, right? Yeah. No, you, the data has to be good. And once you have that data set put together, what you do then is you run some analytics against it and try to get a sense of, well, where are we with quality? Where are we with utilization? Uh, you know, are we spending a lot of money in some particular area? What is that area? And you try to understand it. We also try to get a sense of, hey, in our network, are people staying inside of our network? Or are they? What we found is that our patients are cheating on us for the most part. <laughs> and and we were, I think we were surprised by how often our own patients would go outside the system. Uh, interestingly, sometimes referred by physicians in our system who were referring outside the system. So was that a matter of just people had relationships? Were they shopping around in any way? How, how, do, how does that network leak? Sometimes it's, it's the patient, right? They uh, have a relationship already with a group, uh, maybe at a, at a hospital that's not in a uh, system, a cardiologist, let's say, a, a physician group uh, or, or a specialist group in a different system. Sometimes you sort of uh, led to this a bit. Uh, it's the physician who has a relationship. Maybe uh, the physician went to residency with uh, or did residency with a friend. The friend's in a competing hospital. Uh, she knows that it's, it's a really good doctor and, and has been referring there for the last you know 20 years. And, and in a fee-for-service model, that's okay. But now all of a sudden you're in a risk contract and, and it's not as acceptable. Right. You have to change not just the way doctors treat the patient, but how doctors refer the patient, where where doctors send the patient next. Yeah. And, and patients don't always like that. It's referred to as a narrow network. And, and sometimes even physicians don't like that. They don't want to be constrained by finances. They're just thinking about what they perceive to be the best course of care for their patient. And so there you have to come back and, and really look at, well, what's the quality of care versus the cost? And you get at something called value, right? 
And that's a new concept. That's something that as patients and I think as providers, people didn't have to think about in medicine for a long time. Someone else was paying. That's right. And as soon as you start to spread risk, people start to say, all right, well, what's the value, right? Let's just talk about an MRI for a second. All right. Okay. And let's get into some, yeah. some, let's some get meaty stuff here. Uh, so what happens if a patient needs an MRI? It's indicated it needs to happen. I mean, there are plenty of times when you don't need it, and then we would call that overutilization. But let's say you do. And at one hospital, if you had it done in the hospital, it might cost $1,600. Okay? That's a lot for one little procedure. Absolutely. And then in another hospital, let's say now a community-based hospital, it might be $1,000. Still a lot of money but significantly less. You save $600. You could do a lot with $600. And if you were paying for that, it would be a no-brainer, especially if I told you that the quality was perfectly the same. And there might even be a third option, which is you could go to a Shields type of... The MRI shop down the street. Exactly right. In the strip mall. Now, it matters what the quality is, right? I don't want to pay less and get less. Uh huh. But if I get the same amount of quality, what would you do? Sure, you'd pick the value. But as a patient... You don't always know that. You brought up trust before. I'm trusting my doctor to tell me where to get that MRI. That's right. And that's the mindset that you have to get people wrapped around or thinking about. You really have to point that out to people and say, do you realize that when you refer to this hospital, it's $1,600. When you refer to that hospital, it's 1000 And when you refer to this place, it's 600 bucks. I, I might be exaggerating here. And guess what? The quality of care is no different. That's got to be a big mindset shift, too. I've, I've heard physicians say they don't want to be thinking about price at that moment of care. Right. And, and, and that's we tried very hard. And I think it's, it's smart to really focus in on what's just good clinical care and try not to over-rotate too much on the financial piece because you'll turn people off. But over the course of time, you start to have really interesting conversations that come from uh, this new mindset. And, and eventually people really understand that it makes sense. Maybe it's even more convenient for the patient, right? Like something as simple as parking uh, might be a big deal to a patient. Yeah, access is incredibly important. It's a lot easier to go to that strip mall than to deal with the hospital and the traffic getting to Longwood. And having to pay, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks to park. Right. I, you know, a lot of people talk about this big leap and, and yeah, I don't think healthcare professionals and large hospital systems are interested in taking a big leap and having a lot of risk with that. This is something that we're going to sort of incrementally move towards. And that feels like part of the complication, right, is that there are some risk-based contracts, but fee-for-service is still the lay of the land in most cases. Yeah, that's right. So how do you practice as a doctor with one foot in each world? It's really difficult. You know, uh, you know I think Doctors, just providers, just want to think about um, taking care of patients. They don't want to think about, you know, whether or not they're in a risk-based contract or, or their fee-for-service. It's just not the right way to do it. Interestingly, early on, you know, we would really focus our new care redesign and some of the services that we were provided to just patients in risk contracts. That, that didn't feel good. I'm hearing more and more that healthcare organizations want to think about how they're delivering care to all patients and really transform the way they do care, not just for risk patients, but you know, really for all patients. And that's an exciting direction to be moving in. So as a patient, yeah, I don't want someone to look at me as I walk through the door and say, okay, because I know your risk contract, I'm going to tell you to get the surgery, but I'm going to tell you to not get the surgery. Yeah. I mean, that just doesn't feel good uh, from <laughs> any perspective. No one wants to do that. 
But, you know, what's really happening is that we're having new conversations. All of a sudden, when you start thinking about uh, a population and you start looking at uh, different metrics uh, about, you know, how are we doing with certain things, now all of a sudden conversations are happening between providers, they're happening between the providers and administrators, and even with patients, as we mentioned earlier. And and that's really the beginning of uh, transformative change. Well, that's as good a place as any to press pause because that's what our upcoming podcast episodes are going to be about. Exactly right. We will talk to health system leaders about building population health services from the ground up. We'll meet a community health leader who's focusing in on the social determinants of health. We will talk to a healthcare executive who was present at the creation of the Affordable Care Act. And importantly, we'll take a look at the role data plays in driving better outcomes. So tune in for more conversations about how healthcare is changing from the inside out on decoding healthcare. And go to athenainsight.com for more stories and big ideas about healthcare in America today. Decoding Healthcare is a production of Athena Health. Our producer is Nikki Zace. Our engineer, composer, and all-around jack-of-all-trades is Mike Moschetto. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Athena Health. I'm at Joanna Weiss. And I'm at Kevin Van, MD. And hey, Joanna, remember, eat your oranges. Every morning. Bye-bye.